0: Of the Heidelberg Catechism, Words Day 6, which is question and answer 16 through 19. Let's read these together responsively. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin. But a sinner could never pay for others. Why must he also be true God? So So that, by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. How do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. We have heard scripture. We have heard it summarized. Let's go now to the Lord and ask for his spirit to open the eyes of our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your son, whom you have appointed our mediator and savior as all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness, to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and building up of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. We pray this in the name and favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and a dependence on His Holy Spirit. Amen. Sometimes, how you come to know something is as important as the things that you actually know. The process by which you have come to some knowledge can be a very important thing. And that is certainly the case when it comes to Christian doctrine, And our catechism places that very thing before us this evening. It teaches us that we have to know some things about sin and salvation in certain ways. We come to a knowledge of these things in certain ways. Well, we know the misery of our sin. We spent several weeks looking at that. Our original and actual sin. The corruption that is within. We know the misery that sin brings about. But as we say so often in our services, how do we come to know this? The law of God tells me. The law of God tells me. That's question three of the catechism. But tonight we turn to a new and similar question. It's question 19. Just after this long discussion about Jesus Christ being our mediator. And it says, how do you come to know this? And the answer is, The Holy Gospel tells me the Holy Gospel tells me our catechism has placed these two questions in such a way to correspond to each other. You know, your sin and misery through the law, you know, about the mediator through the gospel. And so these two questions are to be held in a certain sense, side by side. The law teaches you uh, not only how to obey God, but the fact that you have not done so. And that it is behind your misery. But the gospel teaches you about Jesus Christ. What is this gospel? And where in particular do we learn about it? Those are the questions and the topics of the message tonight. So first, what the gospel is about. What the gospel is about. The gospel is about the mediator. Jesus Christ. Kids, we've been saying that word, mediator. Mediator several times tonight, at least a few times over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about it during our catechism time after the services. Just to remind you, a mediator is someone who makes peace between people who are at war with each other, or who are having a fight of some some sort, some conflict with each other. And in this case, the Bible tells us that it is God and humankind that have this terrible conflict going on. And so, kids, as we've talked about, there's this terrible empty space between God and us that's been caused by our sin. And we need a bridge to be built from us to God. We need a mediator who builds that bridge for us. And Jesus Christ is that bridge. He is the one who brings us peace with God. He is our mediator. And the gospel is about him. It's about him. Now, all of this means that the gospel is not something to be done or accomplished. And uh, I'm sorry if you get tired of hearing this, but it is so important for all of us to understand that any time Scripture is commanding you to do something like love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, that's actually not the gospel. That's the law. That's how we come to know our misery. We do make this distinction. They are not at odds with each other in the slightest. They are both God's word, both the law and the gospel. The gospel is not something that you are doing. It is something that's done. And you're just hearing what's, what's been done. It's a message. It's news. The image throughout the scriptures is that a herald is the one who's come to now tell you what already took place. You can receive that news. You can believe it. But you can't do it. It's already been done. And that is the, 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 the great, gracious nature of the Christian faith, is that at its center, the work has been accomplished already. And only Jesus has or could have accomplished what is given to us in the gospel. Peace with God. That cosmic conflict being brought to an end. Only Jesus could have accomplished this. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Plain as day from the Apostle Paul. There's one mediator. There's one bridge builder. There's one person who is our peace between us and God. No one else is qualified to fulfill this purpose. Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? Why does it have to be someone who is uniquely qualified As Jesus is. What qualifications are we looking for? Well, our catechism has summed it up for us, summarized it for us. It, It is human beings who sinned against God. And so, someone with a human nature has to face the punishment for that terrible crime. But God is the one who has been sinned against. And since he is eternal, the punishment must be eternal also. So we have this terrible dilemma as we've seen in previous weeks, human beings have got to be punished, but that punishment is of such a nature that we will never get out from under it. That's the eternal nature of hell. That's why we confess that hell is eternal. It's the difference. There's a, a, a great mentor of mine who's a pastor gave this analogy. And I think it's so helpful. Uh, If you get in a fight with your friend, let's say a fist fight, then maybe uh, the punishment there will be that you're embarrassed with each other. There's kind of an internal punishment because you acted like apes and you shouldn't have done that. Um, So you punched your friend and that's the punishment for it. Okay, you're embarrassed and and maybe uh, the spouses are angry with you and maybe there's some social shame involved. (laughs) Let's say you do the very same thing to the president it's the same exact offense, but this president is clothed with the office of the presidency, the punishment's going to be different. Okay, if you and you, you multiply this to the infinite degree and you begin to understand why sinning against an infinite God requires an infinite punishment, an eternal punishment. So someone, if there's to be someone to bridge the gap, if there's someone who is going to face this punishment in our place as our mediator, he must be a human being to face it, and he must be divine to come through it. If there's to be any kind of benefit then given to us, he must be divine to come through it to the other side and grant us the benefits of having taken that punishment off our shoulders. And brothers and sisters, these qualities are found only in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who has taken on flesh. And the gospel is the joyful news that he has done it. It announces that Jesus has suffered your punishment because he can as a human being with a true human nature and that he's come through it in victory, conquering sin and death and hell. Because he is the true and the eternal God. That's the gospel. But where is that to be found? Where do we learn this gospel? Secondly, tonight, we learn that the gospel is found in all of Scripture. It is not a New Testament invention. And it is not only found in just some select portions of the Old Testament either. But it is found all over the Scriptures. Question and answer 19 beautifully explains this for us. It says, God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. As far back as you can go, this gospel has already begun to be proclaimed. It's very interesting that the one who first heard a gospel sermon, directly anyway, was the serpent. He's speaking directly to the serpent when he says that in Genesis 3.15. But the benefits of it are for Adam and Eve standing by and who had just sinned. Question and answer 19 goes on to say Later, he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his own beloved Son. This answer encompasses all of Scripture. Every book of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, proclaims in some way the gospel of jesus christ that he is our mediator we saw in our reading in luke chapter 24 that the disciples were still confused about who jesus was and exactly what his mission was about and so the risen lord jesus sits down with them and says oh Foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then it says, beginning with Moses, that is, the first five books of the Bible, the law, the Pentateuch, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then he sits down with the rest of the disciples later in Jerusalem, and, and Jesus says to them, Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses to these things. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, uh, the gospel is what I proclaimed to you and that you are resting in. And that is that Christ died for our sins, was buried and was raised on the third day. And all of this, he says, is in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures is is he talking about here? As one who is helping to write the New Testament scriptures at that very moment. When Paul says in accordance with the scriptures Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave. He says it's in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. They proclaimed that this was to come. That's why the gospel writers are always saying and this happened with Jesus because it, it is written. It had to happen. It was written in the divine book and the entire book proclaims that message. And this means that the saving work of the mediator, Jesus Christ, has been God's plan from the beginning. From before the beginning, actually. That's another message for another time. The point is that it's always been the plan. And so if you encounter someone who has an uh, an understanding of the Bible that the Old Testament tells us how people got into heaven, which was by the law... You, you obey. And that was really hard, so not too many people got there. And so God hatched a new plan Plan B. Jesus is going to come and he's going to give you enough grace. Now it'll be easier to obey the law and get into heaven. Is not correct. <laughs> that is not correct. That is uh, a gospel less way of reading the scriptures. And it's not how God has planned for our salvation to unfold. And this gospel is proclaimed not just in one way, but in a variety of ways. He proclaims it, for instance, by divine promises. So God himself speaks. Before Adam and Eve could even be kicked out of the garden, God says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the offspring of the woman. And he's going to come and bruise your head That's a death blow because it's the head. And you, the offspring of the serpent, will bruise his foot, bruise his heel. Suffering is involved, uh, but it is not uh, the suffering that leads to eternal death. That is a divine promise in seed form that the scriptures will continue to build on until we recognize that it, this is a promise about Jesus Christ triumphing over the devil. It's why we read about the heads of God's enemies so often being crushed. It's why Goliath's head is cut off, for instance. He's the seed of the serpent. David is the seed of the woman who's imaging forth for us the Christ who is to come. And he lobs off Goliath's head because God is true to his promises. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. So he, he proclaims the gospel by divine promises. He says he's going to do something. He says it, speaks it from heaven. He also proclaims these promises by the the patriarchs, as question and answer 19 tells us. And by patriarchs, we mean here the, the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, the heads of the 12 tribes. David is called a patriarch. These are the ones who received... The great covenant promises of the Old Testament, like Genesis chapter 12, when God told Abraham that one of his children would become a blessing to the entire world, would come and somehow, though he is from, he's just one person and he's coming from one family, somehow his blessings will extend to every tribe and tongue and people group. Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 this New Testament passage looks back on this moment in Genesis 12 and quotes it and says that was the scripture preaching the gospel to Abraham That's how the New Testament looks back it says the gospel's everywhere and there it is there it is So he proclaims it by the patriarchs He proclaims it by the prophets These are the great servants of God, like Elijah, whom we learned a little bit about this morning, and Jonah, and Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, we read from earlier, the minor prophets, Daniel, so many prophets. Some we have their writings of, and some we only hear about in the Old Testament. But they were the, the particular people of God who were meant to proclaim God's word to the people. Listen to what the Apostle Peter has to say about these prophets. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and following, he's just been talking about salvation through Jesus Christ. And he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The prophets spoke, and what they spoke about, and what they inquired about, because even they did not understand fully what they were saying and writing about, what they were granting to the people of God were gracious gospel promises. Like Jeremiah saying, a righteous branch will shoot up. He will will be raised up from the house of David. And his name will be called, the Lord is our Righteousness. That's a prophecy about Jesus Christ, and the prophets are constantly granting to us these wonderful promises about the mediator. God also proclaims his gospel through the ceremonies of the law of Moses. And this is arguably the the most all-encompassing way in which he proclaims the gospel because those ceremonies are, are, are kind of laid over the entire Old Testament from Sinai all the way to the end of the Old Testament. Those ceremonies are in, they're in place. They're, ha- they're taking place. They're supposed to be being practiced or else, because they have not practiced them as they should have, they're now in exile. So these ceremonies are always a factor. They're always a factor. And when God gave this, this full law to the Israelites with all its commands and all its rituals, they were not given to be kind of legalistic practices just to show them, man, you're bad. Look how bad you did that. Now, it is supposed to show them they're sinners and drive them to Christ. But all of these rituals are pictures of the Christ who is to come. All of them. All of them. And so all of the Old Testament proclaims Christ. By what Hebrews 10 calls. Types and shadows. Types and shadows. A type is simply a pattern. It's a picture that creates a pattern. And all those pictures. Are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. A shadow is something that is. You know it is real. But something is casting that shadow. A real and substantive thing. Is casting that shadow. And all those shadows of the Old Testament. Of the ceremonies of Moses, all those shadows reached their substance and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. There were priests, there were sacrifice animals, there were altars and curtains, sacred bread and incense, there's holy water, there's priestly clothing and, and ephods and jewels and turbans and tassels and bells, there's tabernacles and temples, temple courts, There's the gates of the temple. There's the language of being outside the camp and outside the courtyard of the temple. And on and on it goes. And all of it is types and shadows given to us that we might see in those ways a shadow of a mediator who is to come. There's shadows and the true reality is found in Jesus Christ, prophet and priest and king and temple, and sacrifice, and all these things in one way or the other. All of these these elements of the ceremonies of the law of Moses teach us something wonderful and amazing about the work of Jesus Christ. And this means, brothers and sisters, that if God has been proclaiming the gospel all this time, that the Bible is the story of humankind's constant shakiness, and wavering and on the other, the other hand, God's constancy. He has never wavered. But from the very beginning in giving us gospel promises even in paradise, He has been true to His word. There are many different time periods, different eras that are covered in the Bible, but there's a single faithful God who is behind all of it. There's many different distinct covenants. In the Old Testament. But a single covenant of grace undergirds them all. Uh, after the fall, that is. Always offering, always offering the Son of God to those who will believe. The gospel has always been proclaimed. Always. There are many different genres in the Bible. Stories. Poetry. Books of, of law. Wisdom literature. Literature. Uh, apocalyptic literature, prophetic visions, there's letters. And on and on it goes. And all of it has been used of God to testify to his mercy in Jesus Christ. And so let this be your attitude when you come to the scriptures, that you, you anticipate somehow tasting of Jesus Christ there by faith. When your faith wavers, remember the constancy of God. And when you begin to doubt if the Bible is true, remember how wonderfully and constantly it holds out the same Savior throughout the generations. When Scripture feels dry or detached from your modern contemporary life, come to it again with a heart that burns within you, with eyes that are ready to see the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere. Amen. Amen.